Welcome, everybody, to the Security Guy and the CIA Spy Show podcast, where we are keeping you on top of what is new and ahead of what is next at all times on all things security, tech, and digital literacy. Knowing that when good people like you want to make sure that their money, their family, and their business is safe and secure from attackers, hackers, and thieves, or you just want to make sure your tech is running smoothly, my name is Robert DeSoliano. I am the security guy, and along with my co-host, Peter Warmka, who is a real and retired United States CIA spy, we will give you every single tool, tip, tactic, and skill that you need to fight the bad guy and keep your physical and digital life secure, worry less, and even make you happier. This podcast will help you breathe easier with less stress and a greater sense of well-being. So let's get at it. And welcome to the security guy and the CIA spy. I am Robert Ticiliano, and this is... Peter Warmke, for those of you don't, that don't know it, I am the CIA spy in this couple. He is the CIA spy. He is the real deal. Peter, where did you spend a lot of your time while you were working for the government? Almost all of it was overseas in predominantly Latin America. I, I've been to almost every country in Latin America. And I spent also some time in Western Europe and but traveled all over Middle East, uh, parts of Asia and parts of Africa. That is pretty crazy. And um, how long were you functioning as a CIA spy? At least, at least 20 years. Mm-hmm. And um, how many have you ever been in a situation where you feared for your life? Uh, not because of my affiliation with the CIA, but just maybe from, I don't say fear for my life, no. Uh, my back of my hair, my hair is in the back of my neck went up a few times. It was more from criminal activity or, or t- you know, terrorist uh, organizations. Uh, one of the first countries I went to was Peru, and they uh, we had the Shining Path back then. And there were times when I mean I had terrorists in front of my my home casing the area. So I mean it's and there were bombs going off that you would feel. You didn't know if they were bombs or tremors. I mean there was a lot of that going on. So yeah, from that standpoint of my own physical security for those type of things, but not because of my affiliation with the organization because that was very low profile so if if you are allowed to tell me what 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 type of intelligence would you be responsible for gathering i mean there's a there's a mix and and over my career i collected on everything from uh you know very high priority target countries like uh, russia china you know um and, and some of the the places where i live even like what's going on internally with with the internal government and their their uh, relationships with other countries. Uh, we would target on counterproliferation, organized crime. I mean, a lot of different, a lot of different areas. I across the board, I was involved in. And so you would take that information back to the U.S. government, and they would act on it in some way that basically would be to what infiltrate a particular organization to secure the homeland. Like, what might they do? With I mean, that ultimately, data? you're looking at improving the United States. Uh, positioning in, in, the world, in the world, right? Whether it's in foreign trade negotiations, whether it's in uh, you know, military operations, I mean, there's a whole gamut. It's, when I say it, it is to help better inform senior policymakers you know, back in Washington, DC. We hope it's to better inform them. At least that's our intent. We don't have influence in their decisions, but we help, we help to inform them. So I've you know, watched a ton of movies on spies like everybody else has have you ever worn a wire no i have not no i have not worn a wire but you gotta be careful with watching those spy movies you know why because a lot of these uh 
companies that will produce these movies, they'll reach out and they will hire one or two former agency officers to consult. And I know some of these people, you know, and they'll ask a question about, you know, what is it like to do X, Y, Z? And then when the, the officer says, this is how it's done, that's too boring for Hollywood. Then they'll go, <laughs> they'll go their own direction, you know? So, and, you know, things in Hollywood, uh, there are some really good, there are some really good series though that will replicate pretty much the facts of how things were, but the vast majority of, of these Hollywood films are now, it's for entertainment, it's not really for education as far as understanding how the world really works out there. Very interesting. All right, so today, Peter, we have all kinds of interesting things to talk about. Uh, and here, um, this is Peter Barrow, New Hampshire, loses $2.3 million in an email scam, says uh, CBS in Boston. Now, uh, a lot of you might be saying, well, I don't live in New Hampshire, so why is this such a big deal to me? The fact that <clears throat> a very small municipality, I think that they have like under 10,000 people in this particular town. The fact that this small municipality, you know, wired um, or lost, you know, this much money in an email scam is a really big deal due to the fact that we have, you know, thousands of municipalities all over the country that are targets for the exact same crime. And this could happen to, you know, cities and towns, big and small. Uh, really, they're focusing on just a few people within those cities and towns that have access to wiring those funds. And they'll spend, these criminals will spend years you know, infiltrating these little cities and towns to get access to those people and to find out, you know, where the, who's paying what bill to where. So let me read this to you. All right. So in the small town of Peterborough, New Hampshire, $2.3 million was stolen from taxpayers during July and August of 2021. The town said that 1.2 million was set to go to Conval School District and another 1.1 million to go to Peterborough's Main Street Bridge Project. All right. And then it says the criminals forged email accounts pretending to be officials from either the school district or contractors from the bridge project. They then communicated with the town staff to receive payments. And then someone Internally, the town administrator said they clearly paid attention to how we conduct business, who we conducted business with, and they targeted the most valuable transfers, said the town administrator. And then they said that they also learned small governments like ours are not protected as well as banks or cities. Well, there's no question about that. This so, Peter, let's discuss how a particular fraud or how a particular scam like this may occur so what do you think happened here well this is really interesting because you know we we don't hear too much about these type of attacks or scams in the municipalities you know over the last few years has been so much of the ransomware ransomware where these municipalities also have all of a sudden had all their data you know encrypted encrypted and their their operations are pretty much at a, a standstill but with the ransomware there's no guarantee to the criminals that the criminals are going to get paid right some of the municipalities pay, other ones don't. Uh, but in this case, it's much smarter. They're actually getting into the municipality and being able to gain access to these bank accounts and transfer the money out through these fraudulent uh, wire transfers. It's very similar, almost identical to what we hear, the BEC business email compromise, where 
a, a hacker will get in and then they'll basically imperson you know they'll impersonate someone senior up, maybe a CFO, a CEO uh, who has authority to request wire transfers or a, maybe even a, you know a little bit out of the regular sequence, but all of a sudden, hey, this is an emergency. We need to pay this vendor right now. They'll send an email to some underling who actually can execute that wire transfer. And it might, it might look like a common name. Oh yeah, we got to pay this vendor. We do pay this vendor, but the instructions have a different uh, bank account. Yeah, so I, what I think happened here, I, I think because they knew about particular payments, they knew that they targeted high value payments, right? I think what happened was that it's likely that somebody within the school, somebody, somebody within the municipality, somebody within city hall, basically, or even somebody within the school system or somebody within uh, the, the contractor themselves, the, the company that was doing the bridge, somebody's email was compromised. Yeah, I agree. So, so bad guys got the username which is an email address and the passcode of somebody within the town or somebody within the construction company, probably a little bit of both. And they were able to log into their email remotely from anywhere in the world for that matter. And they were able to read sent and received emails going back for as long as that person has been an employee, right? Either of the mm -hmm. construction company or the school, right? Or the town. And so, being able to read all those emails, they were able to piece together what construction projects there were, what funding need to be made to the school district and so forth. So they learned the internal workings. They probably spent months learning about it all, reading all of these email communications back and forth. And then once they understood exactly what was taking place and who was supposed to receive what specific funds and where those funds were supposed to go. That's when the hackers or criminal hackers in this case intervened. Yeah. That's when they either created a separate email posing as either the construction company or somebody from the city, or they just did it internally using the existing email of, somebody from the company, from the construction company or somebody from the city. And then they just changed the wiring instructions to suit the bad guy in this case. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's a pretty good payday, right? Uh, $2.3 million. Uh, if people can, I mean, that's just one of probably so many uh, scams that the same individual or small group is undertaking. So you can imagine how much money uh, across the board, a lot of these individuals are really stealing and at the end of the day you know it's not like people think well this company gets hacked or whatever it's you know it's that it's that company's problem it's those capitalist problem but here it's the individuals the taxpayers of the city that money you know where's that money going to come from it's coming from their pockets you know are these projects now going to be totally uh totally uh, you know unfunded and, and have to die or are they going to have to find additional revenue from uh, taxpayers you know the mentions i think in the article the insurance but even if the insurance pays part of this, at the end of the day, insurance rates go up. We all we all pay for these types yeah. of, of- And, uh, and if they had cybersecurity insurance, if they had cybersecurity yeah. insurance, depending on their policy, depending on the rider and all this stuff, they, they may or may not be covered because right. 
if 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 the policy covers you know business email compromise scams if it covers phishing scams if it covers you know blatant um uh fraud right that's one thing but it, you know it may not cover that because the cybersecurity insurance they had may only cover like a data breach mm -hmm. you know where so many records Someday we should interview, we should bring somebody on as a guest who's an expert on the cyber insurance and really kind of talk about if, if people in the audience are interested, I think. Anybody in the audience, you uh, engage, you are a, a, a you, you sell uh, or develop cybersecurity insurance, by all means, touch base with us. We at Protect Now actually um, uh, are a vendor uh, for cybersecurity insurance. I could point that out to you later, but we, we actually do have an expert that we have worked with that we, we could bring on. She's really awesome. Yeah. All right. So uh peter with this particular fraud the most important thing i think that everybody should realize as far as this particular scam is concerned is that before you wire money to anyone no matter what the reason is you got to get on the phone and you got to call the person responsible for all the various transactions the people who are sending the funds people who are receiving the funds confirm the legitimacy of that transaction confirm the account information, the, the routing number, the bank account number, making sure that everybody you're talking to is in fact who they say they are, right? And get as much proof as you possibly can before that money is sent out. Don't just trust that email communications are in fact legit because they can easily be spoofed. Back in the day, and this goes way back to the early eighties. I've been around for a while. <laughs> I used to work in banking and uh, for, for certain amounts that were transferred out of the bank, you had to have at least two officials of the bank signing that that wire transfer. I mean, it was kind of like a, a, a I want to say dual authentication, but it was sort of you had two sets of eyes to analyze what's going on here. Does this make sense? You know, and I think we need to do more of those type of things every time we have have a, a transaction, especially of this magnitude. Yeah, they got to go back to basics. Go back to the way it was, like right. more hands on. Right. All right, so Peter, check this out. This is via um, VentureBeat. Proofpoint, which is a um, security company, and Poneman, uh, which is a resource company, uh, losses due to phishing have almost quadrupled since 2015. Right? I am not surprised at all, just based on the last story regarding Peterborough, New Hampshire. Like, of course, you know, you didn't see uh, fraud like that. You didn't see wire fraud like that in 2015. Not two point something million dollars from a couple of transactions it just didn't even exist you had mostly data breaches and credit card data breaches and such but not like that not like what we just saw so costs from phishing attacks have tripled since 2015 the average annual cost of phishing has increased from 3.8 million in 2015 to 14.8 million in 2021 that's this an average that's an average per organization right isn't they're not talking about total annual cost Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is because phishing has a low entry barrier for cyber criminals with a high value return. These emails are very easy to create, require little technical knowledge, and most importantly, depend solely on one user clicking to succeed. Mm -hmm. It goes on to say that phishing attacks not only had direct financial consequences on these attacks, also increased the likelihood of a data breach decrease employee productivity and increase the likelihood of a business disruption, all contributing to additional costs. In fact, huge amounts of time and investment 
are spent dealing with the consequences of a phishing scam, employee productivity losses are among the costliest to organizations, increasing from an average of 1.8 million in 2015 to 3.2 million in 2021. So I think that these numbers that they're speaking to are the overall costs and losses incurred from phishing. So it's, lo it's lost productivity, it's money lost from the actual fraud itself. And, you know, a lot of this can be stopped, a lost productivity, fraud itself. A lot of fraud can be stopped simply by engaging in security awareness training, right? It's a fraction of, it's, it, I mean, it, of course it's an expense, but you, gotta, you have to not consider this an expense. First of all, it's a fraction. This is a, it's an investment. It's not an expense. This is an investment to secure your, you know, a, your, say your assets, your financial holdings, because as you mentioned, there are so many costs incurred with a breach. And that you didn't even mention the reputation, the brand reputation of an entity, the trust, you know, the, you're going to lose clients and it's going to be harder to gain new clients. Then many times there's also litigation costs associated with these breaches that, I mean, it just, yeah, it's, it's like double, you know, or triple what they initially might think as far as the value of the information that was, was stolen. There's so many extra uh, costs associated with this. So Peter, in a, um, a security awareness training that you would provide, give us an example of, you know, what you would present to your audience that would, you know, get them up to speed in regards to what to be aware of. I mean, there's certain levels, right? You can do an initial uh, awareness training that is more extensive than this. Uh, what are these typical videos that you watch when you do the annual um, the compliance training? You know, 15, 20 minute video, and then you answer three questions. And uh, if you get it wrong, well, I can go back and retake the test again. At the end of the day, people don't, people don't remember what they learned. They didn't learn. They did not learn. They're just complying with what the, the corporation, the company says they have to. For a real, real security awareness training, you have to get everybody involved and they have to really understand from the get-go, what is there, why might your, the organization be a target? What's of value to a, an external threat actor? You know, is it the proprietary information, the customer data, employee data, that can be bought and sold? Is it proprietary information for, for, that could be used by a competitor? Could it be financial extortions like, ran, like ransomware or business email compromise? So they need to understand why it could be targeted or what many times today, I spoke to a lot of people recently, they, you know, I was at this conference uh, and they were telling me, yeah, we've been, you know, we've been uh, hacked, uh, we're constantly probed. And it's because they wanna get at their customer data to then go after their customers. So it's kind of like a, a, a domino effect here. So the, the employees need to understand that. They need to understand why their company might be targeted and what the methodology is for these hackers when they're developing, uh, their case and how they might study potential insiders, target right. them and learn yeah. about them. A lot of this through social media. So you're probably looking at a, you know, a solid uh, couple hour workshop for them to really understand. And, but that's not enough. I mean, it's better than nothing. It really opens yeah. their eyes. I think it's important that. to show the employees how specifically they are targeted, right? Just how vulnerable they actually are, how, their LinkedIn profile and their Facebook profile, uh, maybe even their personal pages, and how criminals will gather basic intelligence about them as as moms and dads, as 
as you know, um, as 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 you know, as as an equestrian for that matter. You know, if they talk about how they love horses on their Facebook page, uh, or they are a runner and they run for a particular charity, um, and they, that might be on their LinkedIn page, and how criminals will use that basic intelligence to get access to them, to build a relationship with them, to yeah. send them instant messages, to send them emails based on an equestrian event or a runner, a runner's event or a charity that they might belong to. And they would, they, they would build this relationship with them, send them all these various communications, see what they click on, see what, what, what is the most effective way to get access to that particular employee. And then they might from there target them at either at home or at work. So they'll, they'll continually engage in what we basically call an advanced persistent threat. You know, they continually are working on uh, one aspect after another on a particular individual until they know enough about them and, and have the ability to get as much access about that person as possible. And then once they basically have um, uh, put together a full profile on them and know what their trigger points are, that's when they execute their scam. It's so easy, but you know, a lot of the basic security awareness training today doesn't they don't doesn't go doesn't go deep enough because a lot of it's just focused on basic phishing where you know you get a scammer that will produce an email and then send it out to hundreds or thousands of people yeah and a certain percentage will click it on but what we're talking about here is targeted spear phishing as you mentioned right. I learned about the target I'm going to create an email I might even create a social media profile fake profile and develop in that profile commonalities with the target. We've gone to the same alma mater. We 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 support the same sports teams. We right. support. We remember the same associations, or maybe you know even the same humanitarian causes. And so when they approach you, it's like, whoa, I got so many things in common with this person. Right. You automatically trust them. Right. So that goes back to the sales principle. You know, you do business with those who you know, who you like, right. and who you trust. And right. so uh, you may not necessarily you know know a person, but you have no reason not to like them. Um, you have no reason not to trust them and you have so much in common with them. You feel like, you know, them. And so it basically like the scammer is developing a rapport with you. And over time, once they do so, um, that's when you begin to click the links, provide sensitive information and so forth. So yeah, uh, companies need to up their game, uh, invest in security awareness training, uh, which is like you said, a complete fraction of the millions and millions to billions that are being lost every single year. So, yeah. So Peter, um, I found this to be really interesting. This is from um, securitymagazine.com. I believe this is a, um, a publication of the American Society of Industrial Security. Uh, former U.S. Golf Association employee charged with stealing $3.4 million in U.S. open tickets. In a case of insider theft, so insider fraud uh, has always been a problem in corporations, it's in government agencies and so forth. Uh, federal prosecutors charge a former U.S. Golf Association employee with stealing more than $3.4 million in U.S. open tickets and reselling them for a profit. Uh, let me see. Acting U.S. attorney announced that uh, Robert Fryer in PA was charged with, by uh, information with one count of conspiracy to commit mail and wire fraud four counts of mail fraud and 10 counts of wire fraud related to a scheme to embezzle and pocket fraudulent proceeds from the unauthorized sale. So basically it looks to me like this guy basically had uh, pocketed like $3.4 million worth of tickets over a five, six year period of time. 
So he was skimming tickets from, uh, you know, the, 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 the pile of tickets that they produced every single year. And he sold them at a significant discount for about $1 million. So about uh, two thirds off the face value. And he was just pocketing the money. Uh, he engaged in a years long selling scheme to steal and sell thousands of us open tickets. And, um, you know, uh, they didn't notice it until they noticed it. I just want to wondering, so how long was this going on? I mean, you said a year long scam, or is it longer than that, that year? It's a lot of money. You know, this, I wonder how they caught him. What was the trigger? What, what made it stand out? Why did they he stole 23,000 us open tickets, all without the knowledge or and consent of the USGA. The defendant then sold those tickets to third-party ticket brokers in return for payments totaling more than $1 million. So more than likely, you know, they, they don't actually say specifically how he did it, right? And, you know, it would be, we, we could certainly make an attempt to reverse engineer the process, but it's, it's likely that, you know, like in any organization, uh, you know, if you're, if, 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 if they've got tens of thousands of tickets and, and those tickets are, um, you know, printed out and there's physical tickets available and you can basically fudge the accounting in some way, right? Pad the books in favor of your scheming. That's the best way to go about it. So if he if he's administerially responsible for physically recording how many tickets were sold and how many are left and there might've been like, there might have been uh, promotional tickets that they would give away, right? That's usually how something like this might work. There was promotional tickets. Like, let's just say 1% of the tickets that they would uh, produce were for promotional purposes. Mm -hmm. Well, he might have taken, say, a half of, of those percentage of tickets and wrote them off as they were given away to ABC organization and so forth. So more than likely what was happening is, is he was padding the books in favor of his, his scheming and he was writing off those tickets to benefit him opposed to say charities or other organizations. That's yeah. usually how something like that happens. The see here is so much for checks and balances. And you see this across a lot of companies that get uh, suffer fraud uh, from, from uh, inside, right? Inside fraud. It's just that they don't have another means of being able to validate, verify, what is being done as far as expenses uh, that are being, you know, uh, reported or revenues that are being taken in. So he was able to do this without anybody really detecting it. Maybe, maybe he was caught, you know, if maybe there was somebody observing. I mean, that's a lot of money and you would think he would probably be spending some of it, right? So it's, it's a temptation, you know, to not really get caught. You got to be able to put your money away for a long time in the future without changing your lifestyle. And he probably changed his lifestyle. Maybe people saw him uh, driving real nice cars, uh, other things, and, and started to say, what's going on? This guy only makes, let's say, $120,000, but he's got he's spending way beyond you know, his means. Who knows? Yeah, uh, and, and at some point, you know, it had to have gotten back to somebody that this guy was, you know, always had tickets to sell. Like, you, you, you can't engage in that type of fraud for an extended period of time and it not in some way, shape, or form get back to somebody within the organization. You know, somebody had to talk at some point. Either that or uh, they brought in, you know, some type of a, a forensics accountant to take a look at the books to look for any anomalies. Uh, and, and that's really what all businesses should be doing, small and medium and large. 
is have a forensics accountant come in and look at your books because the people that are responsible for your books on the inside are perfectly positioned to pad those books in favor of their scheming. And, and they're the, they know more than anyone how to do that because it's their job to, you know, pre present the books and just fudging a number here and there, putting a decimal out of place here and there uh, is, is enough to, um, you know, again, pad those books in favor of their own scheming. So that said, you know, bringing in an expert to look for those anomalies is entirely necessary due to the fact that I see, and I'm sure you have this type of fraud occurring all over the place, especially with small businesses where you have like the brother-in-law is the accountant or the sister, yeah. the sister is the bookkeeper and so forth. And, and they're the ones that are, you know, taking a hundred grand a year extra off the top. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a matter of, uh, I mean, companies trusting their employers, but you, you still have that balance. You, when you hire somebody, I mean, I don't know if they had a background investigation on some of their employees. Maybe he, there was a background investigation conducted when he started. Maybe he's, maybe he was squeaky clean, but situations change over a period of time. And all of a sudden, maybe he felt a need for money and he was like desperate. Where can I find some money? Gambling, drugs. Yeah, gambling and drugs. Yeah, gambling and drugs. You know? Right. So I think we, and companies always have to do their due diligence when they're hiring new people and not just it, not just once, as people move into higher positions of uh, authority, responsibility, uh, and access to money, and, and being able to do, abuse the system like he did, of course, they need to, to do like reinvestigations or update their investigations. Very few companies do that. I was just at a conference, an HR conference, and there were a number of companies that provide background investigations, and I went up to them and I asked, you know, how what about reinvestigations or when people are move, moving up into positions? hiring the company, do your clients ask for that? They said, no, it sounds like, you know, that would be a great opportunity, but nobody's asking for those. Yeah. And they should. They should. So Peter, we are, um, well, kids are back to school, uh, or at least they're going to be back to school either. You know, there were some, some kids were back to school late in August. My kids are back to school now. Some are going back to school after um, uh, Labor Day. And we're already seeing school shootings. I think there was a school shooting in North Carolina just yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's, it's back, right. you know, and that's one of those concerns that every single parent, you know, has, or at least they, you know, uh, uh, should. Um, and uh, it's real, you know, uh, we have an epidemic in this country of uh, school shootings and, and, you know, people can argue that with me all day long, but, you know, one kid shot in school is too many and, and, it's, and it's a lot more than one. So students, and this is via managed methods, um, via their blog, uh, the students are returning in person to in-person classrooms and some officials have a new set of concerns. Reports of targeted school violence can rock the psyche of our nation. The horror of violent attacks in these spaces meant for safety and education is unthinkable, but unfortunately it's part of our reality that we cannot ignore. As students return to school, administrators and school resource officers and law enforcement note the potential for an increase in school violence incidents. So this is a really good article that has a lot of really good detail that I would suggest, you know, our audience, you know, kind of dig through. And this particular link will be in the show notes um, uh, once we post it. Uh, there, there are a few things that uh, I wanted to point out, you know, before we um, end up today. So five school violence, early warning signs, uh, bullying. Uh, the report finds that 21% of school violence plotters were motivated by revenge 
for being bullied by their peers. Well, that's kind of significant. So what they're saying is one out of five of those who actually committed uh, school violence, you know, active shooters were kids that were bullied. And, you know, what, what is interesting about that is, is uh, I would say that probably, I would, I, I don't know what the stat is, but I would say that probably two thirds, if not three quarters of all kids going to school were bullied at some point, right? I agree. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's always, it's always been bad. And I think it's only gotten worse because it's not just at school, but all these kids can get on uh, social media at night and continue to bully. Yeah. Uh, digitally, electronically, right, right. you know, I, I was bullied in school quite a bit and I, I got in a lot of physical confrontations in school, not because I acted out, but because I physically defended myself, I was not one to roll over and just take it. Somebody mm -hmm. would say something to me or do something to me. I would respond with something verbal. And if, and when I responded with something verbal and they responded with something physical, I responded with something physical. Uh, I would never even, I never even, you know, considered, you know, shooting up the place. Cause I just, I never, I'm just not a violent person. That being said, uh, I, I, I think that that, you know, report of 21% of plotters were motivated by revenge because of bullying, I, I think that number's low. Um, I, I would bet it's more. And then mm -hmm. number two, suicidal behaviors, 13% of tar targeted school violence plotters are noted to be suicidal. Further, the study finds that 37% of plotters express a willingness to die intended to commit suicide or plan to commit suicide by cop. That is very interesting to me, that 37%. Uh, those are kids that are just unhinged, man. Like that is just scary right there. Well, you know, a lot of them, what they'll do in advance when they're starting to think about this, they will research previous shootings. And so they, I think they come to the conclusion, yeah, almost everybody that gets involved in this, many of them will end up, you know, dying, but they're, you know, they see it as, okay, I'm going to take all these people out with me. They got nothing to lose. Right. And then uh, according to uh, av averting target school violence, 91% of school violence plotters experience some life stressors in the five years leading up to their plotting. Additionally, 81% experienced stressors in the past year or were ongoing when their plotting was discovered. So that stat, those stats make total sense to me. But the fact of the matter is, who isn't experiencing life stressors well i know but isn't that kind of scary if you know this is true and i and i do believe it, it is think about probably more than any time in the last five years this last year year and a half for our, our young our, our, our kids it's probably been more stressful than previous years just because of covid and not going to school i mean so who knows how much of this frustration is is pent up in, in a lot of people right and th those stressors include Family, like separation of divorce, social, uh, bullying, uh, and so like we discussed, academic, uh, failing grades, suspensions, uh, criminal or judicial, 23% experienced uh, stressors related to criminal activity, such as arrest, changing schools, 90% of plotters had changed schools, uh, general personal stressors, like 90% of plotters experienced stressors that report described as unique or personal in nature and therefore not easily categorized and physical health, 9% of school plotters experience physical health stressors. You know, like all of those stressors, the, all of those stats, to be frank, none of those mean anything to me because I just think that all kids experience all of that stuff, you know, and, and, and I mean, we all do, right? Uh, and then 
obsession with violence. I think that this right here, 67% of plotters are found to have an obsession with violence. I, that right there, to me, is the most significant stat in everything that we've discussed so far. The report indicates that this type of behavior includes researching prior school attacks, like you said, communications of violent themes and inappropriate interest in consuming violent and graphic content, watching animal cruelty videos and inappropriate interest in weapons. So I think that more than anything, obsession with violence is the most significant indicator of someone who's going to act out like that. And it says it, 67% of plotters, like that's it right there. You know, this is a child, in most cases, a child that has an obsession with violence and all of these other stressors and whatever are factors, but it's that obsession with violence that ultimately is what makes that individual act out upon what they think about. And then concerning communications, the report finds that other students and or family members are usually in the best position to identify an imminent school violence threat. This is because as plotter gets closer to turning ideas into action, they will usually communicate their intent to someone in at least one of a variety of ways. For example, 94% of plotters share their intention for attacking in some way. That right there, Peter, I think that like that's the most significant red flag of all. Yeah, uh, we gotta so be attentive. We have to pay attention. Just like you know, if you're seeing somebody and interacting with them face to face, you can also I, I go back to social media. Like a lot of these individuals do post things in social media, and after the fact, well, all this stuff is like that. You see, didn't anybody realize it? To this, it looks so clear, right? Some of the declarations, some of the comments that they're making. And in that particular article, it mentions some of the technology that potentially is used or could be used to help maybe identify individuals who might be at high risk for these things. I don't know, is Facebook or some of these other social media sites, are they monitoring with certain algorithms to pick up comments that are made like, like this? Well, the, the social media sites themselves are not. However, there are, uh, you know, you can report a profile, you can report inappropriate content or violent speak, right? We, as, you know, users of these platforms have the ability to police them on our own and speak up in, in both parents and teachers and students themselves should be doing that when they see something going on. Just because somebody acts a certain way and that's their MO and and you, you kind of laugh it off because they're kind of like a jokester and or like they're they're they've always been odd. That doesn't mean that what they're saying and doing is OK. It, we still it, it, you, you still need to bring attention to it to the authorities. Should they actually act out on what they're going to say? You could be responsible as a concerned citizen. You know, if you see something, say something, as the Department of Homeland Security says, uh, to stop a potential attack. Uh, there are actually third party uh, services that will monitor uh, social media chatter uh, if, in fact, they are hired by, say, a particular city or town or a school district to look at all the various social profiles of everybody in that particular school and look for behaviors or chat or speak that would be um, you know, violent in nature. So that, that does in fact exist. Right, 
Right. Really interesting. We need more of that, though. We do need more of that. You know, my kids go to school and um, I'm not so worried about, you know, what goes on in my kids' school uh, due to the fact that, you know, it's private in nature and it's a little tighter. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, the uh, uh, teachers have a really close relationship with those kids and the kids themselves um, are much more of a tight knit group. That being said, um, you know, if my kid comes home and he and she says something in regards to there's a particular kid in class, he's saying and doing these various things. I'm the first one to call the school and say, hey, you need to be aware of this kid, this kid and that kid. And this is what he's saying. I remember, um, you know, back in when my daughter was in fourth grade, uh, there was a boy that this particular school had a very lax policy on mobile phones. And a fourth grade boy brought was bringing a mobile phone into school. My daughter would tell me about this. And, and I, you know, started to become concerned pretty quickly. And then he brought in the phone and started showing porn to all the kids in class in fourth oh, grade. Boy. Okay. So don't you know, like I was down there within 12 hours and um, that kid uh, was uh, ejected from that school within two days. I mean, that was the end of that. Like, I, I got everybody riled up and, and that, that was it. Like, you know, it's fourth grade, like, you know, and that was, but that wasn't just the problem of the child. That was a parent problem. Absolutely. And it, was, and it was also a problem for the school head that was allowing or facilitating that process due to the fact that they allowed mobile phones in school, which I had rejected from the very beginning. So mm -hmm. look at as, as concerned parents, you need to be involved in your kids' digital lives. Uh, you need to know what they're saying, what they're posting, what they're liking, what they're sharing, what they are consuming, okay? If you've got a child that is has a tendency towards violent speak or violent behavior, you as a parent need to step in, right? Th that child is your problem. And, mm. and, and, and your problem could be my problem should your kid act out and walk into school with a firearm or a, we or, 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 or a knife. Mm -hmm. So parents really need to be involved and parents like me and parents like you need to speak up to pa other parents that aren't effectively parenting uh, their children that have a tendency towards violence. And we need to support our teachers because a lot of the teachers feel like they, their hands are tied. They can't, they can't do anything with the children because if they do say, they try to do anything, the parents are going to come on there and say, no, not with my child, you know? Exactly. So, Peter, um, what do you have to promote this week? What I have to promote is just that I'm very busy doing a lot of travel. Uh, I'm going to be presenting at a number of conferences, and I'm very excited. I'm going to be speaking at the beginning of next month at two different TEDx venues. So, good yeah, for you. you're going to be hearing more about me in the uh, weeks to come. Good for you. And your, the website address that people can see you at? Yes, counterintelligence-institute.com. Love and it. also my LinkedIn, my LinkedIn profile, Peter Warmka. There's a lot of information. And how do you spell Warmka? W-A-R-M-K-A. And uh, you can see uh, me and my team at protectnowllc.com. We have a continuing education event coming up for uh, Texas Realtors. We are an actual approved school in Texas for the hundred and something thousand real estate agents in Texas providing our CSI protection training uh, for six hours of continuing ed for Texas agents. And um, yeah, lots of really fun things are happening at Protect Now. I have a 
few announcements to make over the next coming weeks, weeks once we start signing a few contracts. Peter, it's really exciting. I can't wait to tell everybody about it. Fantastic. Other than that, Peter, you have you have the last words today. Well, thank you very much for wrapping up our seventh podcast. Right, Robert? Seven? Yeah, we're getting there. Yeah, and I look forward to seeing all of you uh, during the upcoming eighth podcast. Stay safe out there. We, you know, it's, it's protect each other. It's care about each other. And uh, stay safe healthily, healthily you know, physically and mentally. And be nice to each other. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Talk Thank to you guys. Talk to you later.